Good morning. I'm glad to welcome you to our Sunday School class this morning on Devoted to God's Church. Let's bow together in prayer as we begin. Heavenly Father, as we meet together today and as we open your word to study it, we pray that you would give us your spirit so that we may understand it and uh, not only understand it, but put that understanding into good use in our lives. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. This is our second session in this series titled Devoted to the Church, and the subject matter for today is what is the church? And really to go forward with a study of the church, we need to answer that question, don't we? We need to know what it is exactly that we're studying, what is the church? And my aim today is to answer that biblically, or theologically, as opposed to answering it by approaching the question from, say, a business model or from an approach that goes at looking at some of the practical uh, sociological aspects of the church. So I want to look at what the Bible says about God's people, about the church, uh, looking at the words that are used, the analogies, the allusions that are used to describe the people of God To answer that question, what is the church? Once again, I've prepared a handout for you. If you need one, there's some on the back, back by where my lovely assistant is. She can demonstrate where they are. (laughs) So what is the church? I want to give just a, a brief introduction by looking at the basic meaning that the, of the word the Bible uses. And I, I do find it helpful to go back into the original languages. I don't want to pull that out just to uh, to uh, confuse or to uh, to cause any um, uh, smokescreen or anything like that. There, there, but there is meaning in the words that are used. And so I've given you two words from one from the Greek and one from the Hebrew. I put them in there in the uh, the English letters. The Greek word is ekklesia. And the Hebrew word is kahal, and they uh, they mean the same thing. The the Greek is probably come right on into the uh, from the Hebrew into the Greek. They mean the same thing. They mean uh, they mean those who are called out. And in the uh, in the the Greek word, you can probably hear some of the other English words that come from ecclesia. And I'll pause this and ask, do you know any words that are connected to that word, that are derivatives of ecclesia? Ecclesiastical. Ecclesiastical. Rachel, what did you say? Ecclesiastical. What does ecclesiastical mean? Yeah, having to do with the church. Uh, so the um, the ecclesiastical calendar that some churches follow has to do with the church. It has to do with the different seasons of the year. There's a, an ecclesiastical calendar in the Old Testament where you see all the different festivals, and and that's uh, that's followed uh, sometimes in the church today. Uh, how about the word Ecclesiastes? That's a title of one of the books of the Bible. Do you, uh, what is, uh, how is that connected to 
this idea of ecclesia, the church. This one you have to go a little deeper because it goes back into the meaning of the word. Uh, The meaning of the word is sometimes uh, translated as, as teacher or preacher as the author identifies himself. The teacher says, or the teacher has learned this. The preacher wants you to understand this. This is Solomon writing. But the root word is gatherer, gatherer of, of wisdom. And the root word has that meaning, has the meaning of gathering or to call someone together, to summon them or assemble them. So put in this form, we would understand the church as being the assembled ones or those who are called together or called out. If I could have a volunteer to look up Deuteronomy 4.10 and read that for us. Rachel? The word that we're looking for is translated here, gather, and it is God himself who is speaking through his servant Moses, and he reminds them of something that happened in history where the Lord brought the children of Israel out, his people out of their slavery to Egypt, and he did so for a purpose that they may be gathered before him together at Mount Sinai, and that gathering together is the sense that is used then throughout the Old Testament and then on into the New Testament to describe God's people who are gathered together. They are assembled before the Lord. Derek Thomas has then given this helpful definition that I'll use as as an ongoing definition for the church, that the church is the gathering together of the Lord's people as a covenant community before their covenant God. The gathering together of the Lord's people as a covenant community before their covenant God. We can see this in our confession of faith. The Westminster Confession of Faith uh, describes and defines the church in two forms. I've given you uh, a portion of the Westminster Confession of Faith chapter 25.1, that the church comprises of the whole number of the elect that have been, are, or shall be gathered into one under Christ, the head thereof. You can see the idea of being gathered together once more here. Uh, And you can see that it is a people who are, are gathered together as the Lord's people, a covenant God and a covenant people. And Ephesians 1 describes this in really wonderful terms. And I'll ask for a volunteer to read uh, both of these, Ephesians 1.10 and then 22 and 23. Jeff. 1.10, that in the dispensation of the fullness of the times, he might gather together as one all things in Christ, both which are in heaven and which are on earth. Put all things under his feet, gave him to be head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. There is 
that definition that the confession uses that describes God's perspective on his people, that they are the ones that he has gathered to himself. Now, this first definition has in mind what we call the, the invisible church. Of all the Marvel movies around, uh, I need to pause here and define this not as people who have the power of invisibility. They can disappear from your sight. Uh, no, when we talk about theologically the idea of an invisible church, we're talking about those that... Uh, that span all of the history of God's time. The Lord knows his people from all of time and all of places, and he sees them as one single body, those who are genuinely his. We would demonstrate this, for instance, from John chapter 10, where Jesus talks about his being the good shepherd, that he knows his sheep, he calls them by name. And then we can see that in the book of Revelation, where the saints who have gone before are gathered before the throne of God, praising him. And we talk about it as invisible because it's not something that we can see. Now, God always sees it. And speaking from his perspective, he has a perfect knowledge of all those who belong to him, uh, crossing all boundaries of time and space. But we can't see that. It's not apparent to our eyes. And so that theological term has in mind all of God's people that are genuinely his. Now, if there's an invisible church, there's a visible church as well. Having defined the invisible, let me ask you to define the the visible. What is the visible church? Sure, yeah. It has a location. It has a a zip code. It has an address here in Stillwater, Oklahoma, or in Oklahoma City. There are local gatherings, local manifestations of the people of God. You can see it. You can hear it. You can can hug the, the members of the church that are gathered here today. Now, it is also... Uh, described in the Westminster Confession of Faith in this way, the visible church consists of all those throughout the world that profess the true religion and their children. That gives a a larger idea of uh, of the the churches being around the world, and it can be narrowly defined as one that you can see and visit in your own locality, but... uh, This definition also identifies something else, and that is that there are a people of God uh, who, or excuse me, a people who profess to be a people of God uh, that are gathered together. And there's a distinction between the invisible and the visible in this way. Uh, We've identified that there is a distinct visible or people you can see and touch as opposed to all time. But in the visible church, it uh, is described as those who profess the true religion as opposed to those who are genuinely of Christ that that God knows perfectly. So the visible church may be a mixed uh, mixed company. 
those who genuinely believe and those who outwardly profess but have either deceived themselves or are deceiving others. Some examples of this come from 1 Corinthians. Would someone read 1 Corinthians 1, verse 2? I'll take Henry and then Sam, 1 Corinthians 12, 12 through 13. Start with uh, chapter 1, verse 2. Paul is writing to a specific church, a visible church, the church in Corinth, and he identifies them with very rich words as well. We'll get into some of that and the points that come. But let's also listen to 1 Corinthians 12, 12 through 13. As Paul describes what that church ought to be, you might remember that the church in Corinth did have a mixed character. It, uh, it had factions within it. There were errors that needed to be corrected. And uh, there were ones who were arguing of their, uh, they were more important because they were disciples of Peter or Paul or Jesus. And, and uh, as, as Paul corrects them, he's pointing them to the, the genuine nature of the church, those who are called by Christ, who are united to him, who have the same spirit. Um, so throughout the rest of, of the class, you'll find that we'll be addressing different aspects of both the invisible and the visible church. And you should know those terms because I'll be using them throughout the class. Any questions before I move on to the first point here? So from the words that are used in the Bible, the idea of those who are called out ones, those who are the gathering of God, there are three aspects that I'd like to highlight today. And you can see them summarized here and we'll, we'll look at them. The first is that the church is called together to belong to the triune God. I would say that this is the primary identity of the church, that we belong to God. We're part of his family. You might remember that, uh, that in last week that I called your attention to what Sinclair Ferguson says, that believing also involves belonging and primarily, we belong to God. And the church is about belonging to God individually and corporately. Remember that one thing that I pointed out last week is that there's a tendency to emphasize the individual in, in opposition to the corporate. And so I want you to hear that again, that it is important for you to belong to Christ individually as you believe, but it is also important for you to belong corporately to Christ. Believing involves belonging, and in this case, it, it involves belonging to God, and 
and we'll see in the next point, therefore belonging to each other. And when, when Jesus himself talks about that gathering of his people, he uses terms that describe just how important it is for the relationship to be built on the foundation of, of God himself as revealed in the Son, as then also proclaimed in the word that goes, goes forth. It is, it is his church. It is by his authority that it is founded and governed and, and delivered and uh, every aspect of belonging comes in here. In the scriptures that I've listed here, let me begin with Matthew 16, 18, then I'll go back to Exodus. Uh, who would read Matthew 16, 18? Vicki? Who'll take Exodus 3, 12? Uh, Chris? And First uh, Timothy 3, 15. Rachel, thanks. Let's start with Matthew 16, 18. This is one of the very popular passages that we would turn to to answer the question, what is the church? And it does begin with the fact that Jesus is the, is the builder and maker of, of the church. Uh, Sinclair Ferguson calls this passage uh, Jesus' manifesto. This is part of what he is a, he's come to do. He's come to save sinners. That salvation is for a purpose. We are, we are saved so that we might belong to God, so that we might uh, belong in, in, in a saving way and a sanctifying way and that we might belong to him in a corporate way. Jesus' answer here is being is in answer to something that, that Peter said. He was asking the disciples, who do people say that I am? And there are various answers that are given and so Jesus says, but who do you say that I am? So when Peter answers, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus' answer to that is, is that, uh, uh, yes, this is true. And I will build my church on this rock, upon, uh, upon Peter, upon his confession, upon his identification of Jesus Christ as the son of God. He is that one foundation that uh, that Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians. Let's also uh, look at a couple other passages here. Let's hear Exodus 3, 12. Go back to that idea of assembly or of gathering. Here, God is giving an answer to Moses. And it's, uh, it's fascinating that in answering both Peter and now Moses, that, that God is 
giving uh, the church as part of his answer to uh, to the people that are uh, are uh, unsure of what the future may hold uh, and are uh, are are wanting what God is offering. God had called Moses to go to Egypt and to say to the most powerful nation in the world at that time, uh, you have to let these people go. You have to let these slaves, your workers, your economy, you need to release them. Because God said so. And Moses is unsure about what this is all about and about the prospects for it. And, and so God says, I will give you a sign about this. He gives them actually several signs, but the this one is that when you bring them out, they will you will gather them together to me to worship at my holy mountain. The church was an answer to Moses about God's purpose in this world, to have a people that belong to him. And the church stands as a testimony of, of the fact that God will have his people and God will redeem and deliver and glorify a people to himself. And the gates of hell will not prevail against it. The church is called together to belong to the triune God. In 1 Timothy 3.15, one other aspect of that comes through. I like this one because uh, Paul here is, is helping Timothy to know how to order the church. And that gets down into the, the day-to-day process of living together and what the church looks like. But he, uh, Paul makes sure to let Timothy know and, and to let all believers know descending from him that that the church doesn't belong to Paul or to Timothy. It's the church of the living God. And the conduct conduct of the church needs to flow from that belonging, from that authority that comes from Christ. And that's confirmed in a number of different places. We read earlier Ephesians chapter 1.22 where, where Paul says that Christ is set as the the head of the church for all things, for its ordering, for its instruction, for its sanctification, for its well-being, for its unity. You might remember as well that over and over again, it's stated that Jesus loves his church and gave himself for the church. This does have a very practical implication for us. There's a spiritual reality that is contained in the church. Uh, and that spiritual reality is that we belong to God. From God's perspective, he knows those who are his. And has given the son to claim and redeem those who belong to him. And has given a spirit to quicken us so that we may see him and repent and and be joined to this God and his bride. 
that spiritual reality is something that has effect on us right now. When you hear about an invisible church, it might uh, it might be tempting to think of, well, I'll join that when I pass away and I appear before God in eternity. And there is a a greater reality when we see Christ face to face in in eternity, but don't push it off until then. You are even now really joined to God in Jesus Christ. And that's manifested in the church. And one way that we see that especially is through the worship of the church. When God brought the children of Israel out, he brought them out so that they may be gathered, so that they may worship God. And the spiritual reality of belonging to him is especially communicated as the people of God gather in his presence to worship him. Worship is centered on God. It's not centered on the pastor or the building. I'll make that point again. it is, uh, it is centered on God. You, you'll see that even in our, uh, even in the structure of our worship. It's God who calls us into His presence. There's that gathering together. It is God who is, in a sense, the audience of our worship. We are in His presence, giving praise and honor to Him. We speak to him in our prayers and in our praise. And then we humbly listen to him as the Bible is read and proclaimed in the preaching. We hear him and then we see him proclaimed in the sacraments. He is God and he is worthy of worship. And we are his people. We are the people of God who are gathered together. The second point that I'd like to make is that the church is called together to belong to each other. So fundamentally, the identity of the church is vertical. We belong to God. But belonging to God also implies a horizontal belonging. We also belong to each other. And that vertical belonging doesn't negate the identity of the church is also horizontal as belonging to each other. And the New Testament church emphasizes this by using some really wonderful analogies to describe what the church is, who the people of God are. And I'm going to focus on one, but let me invite you to name just a few of the different analogies that are used to describe the people of God. We are his sheep. I've used some of these already. The sheep of his pasture. What else? (laughs) That's a nice one. Yeah, chicks that are gathered underneath his wings. We are his body. A vine and branches, yeah. A clay pot, good. Yep. 
we are brothers, yeah, and that's getting uh, into the re the region that I want to focus on, and that is the the idea of being the family uh, of God. And brother is one of those familial terms that is used that we're actually going to going to look at in the scripture. Uh, let's go ahead and, and look at these so you could hear some of the language of family that comes through. Uh, who will read Matthew 6, 9? Sam. Uh, someone take the two passages in Romans, Romans 8 and Romans chapter 9. Uh, thank you, Sean. Uh, Ephesians 2, 19. Uh, Jeff. And then Hebrews 2, 11. Thanks, Rachel. Well, let's start with uh, Matthew 6, 9. Where's the family relationship there? Our, our father there. I'm glad you uh, emphasized both the name and then the, uh, the our aspect. Father is, is the obvious one. He is a father to us. And that language is language we understand very easily just because we live in families as well. We have, we have uh, each one had father and mother. But he's our father too, and there's a corporate aspect to that. We are uh, we are brought into a family uh, of God. Uh, so we look at our father, but we also see our brothers and sisters, as we say, our father. How about uh, the uh, uh, the two passages in in Romans? Good. In this case, we are adopted children. We're sons and daughters of God by the by the uh, the adoptive love of a father towards us. And if you uh, want to read more on this, you can ask me. Uh, the, that idea of adoption is one that is sometimes overlooked uh, when we think of. God's justifying us and sanctifying us. Our catechism has a, a question in the middle there. We, are, we know the grace of God by our justification, our adoption, and our sanctification. And that adoption is a really powerful and, uh, and instructive uh, doctrine for us. It's not just an analogy, it is, it, is the, it is the will of God for us that we would be his adopted children. This makes us members of the household of God, Ephesians 2, 19. Now therefore, you are no longer strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. We're members of the household of God. We're, we're not on the outside looking in. We are gathered by God into his fellowship, into his household. And then this 
is uh, uh, a stunning declaration, Hebrews 2.11. He's not ashamed to call us brothers. Who's not ashamed to call us brothers? That's Jesus. When we think of brothers and sisters in Christ, we usually think of of the horizontal. We think of each other, but uh, but Jesus is is not ashamed to call you his brother. He's not ashamed to look at you as a co-heir with him. Uh, and this is another aspect of the church that that ministers to our souls. Now, in talking about a family, let me observe that that family can be a difficult analogy, especially if you've grown up in a family that has been fractured by a variety of tragedies or sins. I should have asked her earlier. I'm going to use Vicki as an example here. Uh, Her father left her family when she was in her teens and divorced her mother, and they were left, in a sense, to cope on their own. In God's goodness, Vicki became a Christian just prior to that life-changing trauma that, that entered into her family. And in God's goodness, that was something that sustained her. But uh, in, in talking with her about this, the concept of God being our father took time to sink in because the father that she knew was nothing like the father that is described in the Bible. And that can be a, a trouble for us because the families that we know are often fractured and and torn into pieces. And it can be something that if you hear aspects of God's love being like a father, that either you can't understand or you say, I don't want to have anything to do with that because of what I knew, know of, of earthly fathers. But here, the the good that is given by God is not negated by the errors, the sins, the failings of the earthly family. Instead, the the good and the perfection of God is is set out as something that is, 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 is healing and is something to embrace you. Derek Thomas puts it this way, to those who experience whose experience of family is dysfunctional in this world, the experience of belonging to a community of brothers and sisters is redemptive and restorative, particularly when they experience the loving concern or the fellowship of those who are are of the household of faith. There's something about the belonging together that is redemptive and restorative. I want you to hear that. I want you to recognize the the practical implication that that is, and I'm going to apply it to worship again. The idea of God gathering sinners together to worship him. That's inherently dangerous, isn't it? 
not only does do our earthly families fail us, but our brothers and sisters will fail us if we're depending on them without looking to God. And yet as we look to God and as his love works through us, then then this horizontal aspect of the church becomes comforting, becomes a place where redemption is uh, is experienced and realized and and worked out with one another. And in worship, we express that because we come together as a people of God. We're not... Uh, we resist fragmenting into those different coalitions or factions that can easily happen. We resist fragmenting into sociological groups. We, we have what would be called today an age-integrated congregation, right? That's the, that's the cool and hip way to, to say it. <laughs> um, it, it is... It crosses economic boundaries. It crosses national boundaries. Um, we resist isolation. And I say this in the context of coming out of COVID, where online worship, so to say, was a temporary measure, but only temporary because God calls us to belong to him together with each other. Uh, not uh, hold up in your bedroom with the ease of your pajamas and a cup of coffee and with your tuned in to SRPC net. It serves a purpose. There are times when providence hinders you from attending, but we belong uh, together. Uh, uh, questions on one or two? Vicki. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, it, it is God's idea. It's God's instit- institution. It is it is his people. This isn't something that we concocted or we uh, we scrabbled together to form a little club. Uh, this is God's institution. Do you want to treat number three? So let's go on to number three here. The church is an assembly of people uh, called out of the world. And this is related to that Greek word again, ekklesia. The ek, the E-K at the beginning is a preposition. You might relate it to the E-X that we use. In, in many words today. If someone is an expatriate, they are someone who is, has been removed out of their fatherland. So when, when we lived in China, we were expatriates, and you could find communities of others that are expatriates and, and, and gather together, if you would. Uh, you could be an ex-smoker or... An ex-Sooner, someone who has stopped cheering for the Sooners, (laughs) 
lots of different X's that you might have. So ek means called out. We are the called out ones. And this has to do with our being holy to the Lord. We are holy to the Lord. And holiness has a double edge to it. Holiness has a sense of of being set aside to belong to God. There you get that idea of, uh, of the assembly, the gathered ones that I've been talking about all throughout this lesson. Set apart to belong to God, but there's also a, being a set apart from sin negatively. And that's what we usually think of as holiness. We are free from sin or, or called out from the world, out from, uh, from sin. And this comes through in a couple of different places uh, for time's sake, let me ask for a reading of Romans 1-7 and 1 Peter 2, those two verses. Who will read Romans 1-7? Chris and 1 Peter 2, 5 and 9. Thanks, Mark. So let's start with Romans 1-7. We're called to be saints, and the word there is holy ones. This is the church that he's speaking to, the letter to the Romans. In 1 Peter 2, verses 5 and then 9. Verse 5. You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house, to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices, acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. The entire passage is worthy of, of further meditation. I'm using it today to underline the nature of the church as being a holy people, a royal priesthood, a nation belonging to God. And so you get that, the, that concept of being holy. This is something that is professed throughout all of the history of the church. Think of the Apostles' Creed. We believe in the one holy Catholic church. Catholic here, not as Roman Catholic, but Catholic meaning universal, uh, but the holy aspect. And as I've been doing, let me give a practical uh, implication of this, especially in terms of our worship. We are called together to worship this God. We are gathered by him into his presence. And in our worship, we have this sense of being called out of the world and into the heavenly throne room of God. And if you've never thought of it that way, I'd encourage you to meditate on this aspect of our worship. We're called out of a sinful world into the very throne room of God to worship him through the mediation of Jesus Christ. So we're called out of the world and called into his presence. We're set apart from sin and we are set apart to God. And that's... Uh, that's presses us on in our belonging and a pursuit of holiness, a pursuit of belonging to God.
just then as a final quote from, uh, uh, from Sinclair Ferguson. In meditating on what Christ has done for us and the, and the foundation that he is, Ferguson says that the church is that important to the Savior. He loved her and he died for her. If that is true, then it follows that as a disciple of Jesus, I too should love the church. It should become central to my life. It is simply not possible to live a God-centered, Christ-centered, spirit-led life unless my life is also church-centered. So as we think about our own core values, it is worthwhile taking stock and asking, asking ourselves, to what extent am I a church-centered Christian? I'm going to close here on this note with that question uh, that uh, the, the importance of answering what is the church and its importance in our lives. And if you have further questions after I pray, you can come and talk to me. But let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for our Redeemer Christ, who is our head, our Savior, our elder brother. Father, I thank you that you have called us to belong to yourself and to belong to each other. Father, I pray that as we anticipate worship, that we would have that sense of gathering in your presence as your people, as your church. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thanks. You're dismissed.